This episode of Giants and Crowns is brought to you by High Five. Recently named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies of 2018, High Five simplifies business collaboration with a conferencing platform that builds connected cultures. It's the only all-in-one conferencing solution, including intuitive cloud software and purpose-built meeting room hardware. Plus, it's a high-quality experience with a 4K HDR camera and industry-leading audio powered by Dolby Voice. Growing fast with customers in over 100 countries, High Five is already trusted by the likes of Harry's, Rue La La, Expensify, The Atlantic, and Betterment. To learn more and start simplifying your team's video and audio conferencing, visit giantsandcrowns.com forward slash high five. This episode of Giants and Crowns is brought to you by Vettery. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects top tech talent with growing companies. All candidates are fully vetted before appearing on Vettery, and a new batch of candidates appears every Monday morning, great for startups or anyone looking to expand their tech team. Vettery also released a comprehensive tech salary report for 2018, and in it you can learn exactly how much software engineers are getting paid, use it to make the right offers, and build the best team. Vettery's salary report is available to Giants and Crowns listeners for free at vettery.com forward slash Giants and Crowns. That's V-E- T-T-E-R-Y dot com forward slash Giants and Crowns. Uh, so my name is John Ferno. I am CEO at Hive. I realized really early in my life that I was a collaboration and teamwork nerd. I, I love the human psychology I love thinking about how we can help people achieve their goals together, uh, about the challenges that stand in their way, and, and I guess now how tech can help. So for me personally, I was um, a management consultant um, for a big big firm, uh, helping big international teams work out how to work together. Um, the software that we had at the time was just not good enough, it sucked. Um, so I went to join a product company um, to try and get a you know, better tool set. And in the end, I felt that that company also had um, had missed an adjacent opportunity uh, that was what everybody's asking for, and that, that's what Hive is. That's where Hive came from, was the desire to finally build the tools that match up with the real psychology of how people work together. So can you can you unpack that for me? Like when you say the mm-hmm. real psychology of how people work together, um, what is what does that mean to you? So I've got, you know, we've got seven design principles uh, at Hive, which I've turned into an acronym of ProLord. You okay. can uh, <laughs> see them on my LinkedIn somewhere. But if I give you just one example, like people, people don't like spending time on stuff that's not core to what they enjoy. Now you can call that like efficient, you can call that lazy, you can decide what word you want to use. But for too long in our schools, we've asked people in the workplace to do things that they don't want to do for the benefit of the business. If you do that, then no one adopts the tools you put in front of them. If you make the tool the easiest way to do the thing that they selfishly want to do in that moment, that's the way that you get adoption from real people. And we've seen that with tools like Slack, for example, right? That's a very easy way to send a quick message. It's, it might be the easiest way available to you. Or, or WhatsApp, we see a lot in businesses. But, so, but you know, when you talk about the human psychology, you know, I've got these seven principles of things that we learn about how humans work, and your software cannot change those facts about about humans. So, what are the the seven principles, and and then how did you come to those seven principles? So, they, I've actually built them up over you know uh, having you know a hundred showers in the morning, you know, yeah. and turning when I go to bed. Um, I built them out. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to pull up for myself the uh, original thing that I wrote. That's going to take me a hot second. So it's things like um, laziness. It's things like part of least resistance. Um, it's things like uh, options or a cop-out. Like people don't go set up options. The majority of people don't choose settings. Um, you know, Apple taught us this, right? iPhone has, you know, well, it now has zero buttons on it, but it had one, one button on it. They didn't cop out and say, here's six different buttons for what you might want to do. They're like, look, we're just going to judge for you that what you want to do is get back to where you started. Here's one button and it's always going to do what you expect it to do. So there's all these like, a lot of this boils down to the same thing, right? Which is don't make the user work. Like that's our job. As software makers, it's our job to find a good way to do something and to make it easy for you to understand and to follow that pathway. And too often in software, we still leave that effort on the user's side. 
The user has to figure out their settings. The user has to do something annoying now so they get a benefit later. And these things don't, that's why you don't get adoption because that's not fair. It's, it's a cop out. How, ha, I guess, at what point did you make that realization, that general realization of sort of creating a product that reduces the friction uh, associated with adoption? I mean, that's, I mean, that core principle, I think, is, is, is inherent in most software solutions where you want to try to reduce the, reduce the friction. But, you know, over, you've, you've been around since 2015, when you first built the, when you first built the first version of Hive, how has that shifted? from then to now and what have you doubled yeah. down on what's worked better than others so man the world is moving fast around this so i'll give you some specific examples like kanban and yeah. like that kind of board stuff when i first started at think about this um i'm doing the first prototypes and stuff like kanban was like you know a thing that maybe you'd use in software engineering but really didn't exist in the mainstream and then trello and tools like trello have like you know exploded and suddenly it turned out to be a, a really sort of like human friendly enjoyable way to manage stuff so one example would be you know we introduced kanban very early because we realized how much people loved it and then related to that and like your point about like you know why why is something like hive different i also learned that like well, I learned two things. One, having done international consulting to multinational companies, I assumed that then when I looked at startups, the team problems would be different. That was not the case. The problems were freaking identical. The same problem in 60,000 person multinational organization is the same problem that a startup will get once it hits 20, 25, 30 people. So that's the, that's the first thing is that, the, that I saw that the problems were universal. So, so go to solve the problem, not, not be specific about the team. But the second thing is, and it's the opposite way around, is that people are not the same. People are really different from each other, and that's okay. Like, if you try and make a solution that is suitable for all people, I, I don't think you'll be successful because people think differently, especially when it comes to like work and work management. So a specific example of how we had to be sensitive to that at Hive, like you yourself, right? And in, in when you're organizing your stuff, are you like a sort of Kanban Trello board guy? Are you like a Microsoft project planning kind of guy? Like what what flavor comes naturally to you? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a text editor outline kind of guy. So I, I nice. set like my high levels and I set my sub hierarchies and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so for us, you're a lists guy, right? You, you like yeah so there's there is in a parallel university there's a guy who looks just like you who says oh my god i hate lists right. what i want to see i like being able to move stuff from left to right i really like that and then there's a third guy who's like you're both completely wrong what i want is a timeline of everything i'm doing in the next six months and i want to see it on a chart so i can see what i'm doing and what i'm doing next and what that's like super kind of like time organized and what i learned is that each of the three of you is never going to convince the other that they are like right Right? All three of you are right. It's just how your brain is organized. So at Hive, what we learned was you have to respect different styles. If you want the whole of an organization to join secret source under Hive. So the So I guess how do you from a from a technical standpoint to the extent you can speak to it, like how do you achieve that? Like how do you achieve those multiple views? Like for example, um, is is Asana considered a competitor to Yeah, sure. So I've had sort of a love-hate relationship with Asana where, <laughs> you know, there's a point in time. everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and the same thing for Trello. So, like, with Trello, no list view. Um, yeah. I could take a – if I when I compile my, my things to do in a text editor, I can copy and paste everything, create all these different cards. But I can't yeah. transition back into a true list view. With Asana, yeah. up until recently, there was no real Kanban view. Um, yeah. And now you have to pick one. You have to pick either. Before you start, exactly, and you've made your choice. And that's yeah. it. It sort of just set in stone. So I've always thought, okay, the reason for the difficulty in swapping between the two is that there's something on the database side that makes it hard or challenging to kind of reconcile. Um, how do you do that within Hive? Like, how do you solve that core problem where you allow the organization as its own to house multiple ways to address the project from a view standpoint? Um, but still provide that sort of customization from an individual standpoint. We just built it. I don't know how to. I don't know how, how, how to ask the question. Um, you can come and work in Hive marketing. That's uh, your view of the world matches up with ours. Um, no, you're, I mean you're completely right. You know what I mean. And and that's the point about flexibility. I think there's so you know we're an East Coast firm, and I think 
despite my uh, my funny accent. Um, everyone's here in New York, and I think I think that's super healthy. I think one of the things that's changed about our ethos is, you know, we we aren't just looking at these problems from a sort of isolated, what do we think people should do way. We're like on the ground in like advertising agencies or marketing agencies, brand agencies, or, or you know, businesses like um, Uber or WeWork or whoever else. And so we just found out that they had to be able to choose different styles. So from a technical standpoint, you know, we have one data model with the data underneath, and then we just have the, you know, the UI layer is just choosing whether it wants to show that as cards or show that as a timeline or show that as a list. I see. This episode is brought to you today by Earth Class Mail, a mail automation service that helps you reduce clutter and streamline your tasks by converting all that clutter, all those papers into digital documents and then integrating those documents with platforms you already use. So there are online tools also help you identify checks and deposit them directly and quickly automatically into your bank account, which allows you to focus on running your business, allows you to focus on taking care of your kids, it allows you to focus on scaling, allows you to focus on listening to this podcast. Um, so definitely uh, check it out over at giantsandcrowns.com forward slash earthclassmail. Schedule a personalized demo through that link. Um, also, Giants and Crowns listeners get 10% off their first year of purchase, um, which is a great deal. And also, if you prepay for an entire yearly account, you'll also receive 8% off. So that's 10% off the already existing 8% off, which is just a lot of money off. So definitely check it out. Um, it's a larger discount. Again, check it out at giantsandcrowns.com forward slash earthclassmail. Male. I guess so let's, let's take a, a couple steps back. So what was the, how did you and your co-founder meet or how did you and your original team meet? Yeah, so um, so I, uh, kind of a, a weird one actually. So I'm, I'm non-technical or I guess I used to be non-technical. Okay. And um, but the thing is I have very many bad ideas. That's something I've learned about myself. <laughs> I think we um, all have a lot of bad yeah, ideas. <laughs> And my viewpoint is, um, if you make bad ideas, it's up to you to uh, deal with them. You shouldn't put them on other people. Yeah. And so when I thought about prototyping Hive early on, I was like, am I going to ruin someone's life for six weeks testing out all my bad ideas? Or am I going to step up to the plate and learn how to prototype them myself? So I locked myself away in a cabin above uh, Lake Tahoe in California, mm. got, got fat, got sunburned, uh, taught myself to code. Um, and prototyped many, many, many bad ideas. Um, but I could do it quickly, right? I could do, you know, an idea a day, basically. Um, and then once I was ready to come down from the mountain, um, podgy-cheeked, um, pink-skinned, uh, I <laughs> went to a developer meetup um, where uh, I met with uh, people I knew through the community, whatever else. And I go on, you know, one of the guys was uh, mad enough to, to join the journey, Eric Tepaldos. Uh, you know, he's had an illustrious career, he's ex-White House, ex-Oracle, um, knows about these scalable platforms, a great technologist. Um, and we, we, you know, very, very quickly got into AngelPad, the uh, sort of famed accelerator here in New York. Um, and we were off to the races, raised our seed round straight afterwards. So how did you... You know, how did you meet Eric? Like, how did that conversation come about? Um, and then also, how did you get into AngelPad? Like, those two things for you, I would imagine, are major inflection points in the growth and the scale of, of what's possible. And the fact that, you know, the saying, the harder I work, the luckier I get, I do believe in, but you still need a little bit of luck. So in terms of... Um, I guess, so meeting each other, uh, when we decided to properly work together, the first time was uh, in a room in the Waldorf Hotel in New York um, that I had sneaked into to pretend that I was like the real deal and he would think that I was, you know, more like <laughs> or whatever. Okay. I wasn't staying there. I just wanted to like look more credible than just like some <laughs> random foreign guy, you know what I mean, like meeting up. Um, we split the company um, within that first 10 minutes, just done and dusted, that was that. Um, as in, you know, our founder shares and stuff. So all this stuff about, you know, spend six months trying to decide your founder agreement. Right. No, pick the right person, you can do it in 25 seconds and get onto stuff that actually is valuable. And then there's a second part to your question. You asked about us meeting. Yeah, oh, so like Angel Pad. Angel Pad, yeah. So I was, uh, so we applied to AngelPad uh, and were roundly rejected. Um, AngelPad is tremendously selective to get in. Um, our application was not good enough. Um, however, 
an example of like what goes around comes around. Um, some good, well, now good friends of mine, at the time I didn't know them, were in San Francisco pitching their company. And where I was working, so they were Brits as well, and obviously you can hear I'm Brit. Um, and they uh, were in the office I was in, and they didn't know where to go afterwards um, because they didn't know San Francisco very well. And I took pity on my fellow Brits and was like, oh, okay, fine, I will finish work early we'll go and find some fun for you because they're only out for like, you know, two days or whatever from the UK. It's a hell of a flight and time zone. So I took them out, showed them a good time. And of course, you know, as part of that, you know, you chat a little bit about what you're doing and whatever else. Turns out that those guys were part of a fantastically successful startup, which did AngelPad. And when the leadership um, had one spare spot, they asked their alumni, um, who do you know who could take this this last minute spot? Um, And they were kind enough to say, Hive, um, and they only knew about me because I'd taken them out for some fun in San Francisco. <laughs> and, uh, the other part, which I know and see so you, you won't believe this. Uh, I have to show you like my phone tickets and my um, telephone records. But I decided to move to New York anyway, even without any funding, without a job, without anything. Um, I'm in the um, security line at SFO, literally like going through for like, you know, a boarding pass or whatever. Um, and the head of AngelPad calls me and he's like, hey, uh, we decided to offer you a place at AngelPad, but there's one condition. You need to be in New York City at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. And at this point, it's maybe like, I don't know, like mid-afternoon the previous day. And I'm like, how on earth could anybody get from like West Coast to East Coast, like uproot their life for 12 weeks in like 12 hours? And then I look around and I'm like, this is literally physically the only place I could be right now where I can do the crazy thing you just said. So I got to have that moment of seeming like an absolute baller. I was like, yeah, I'll be there. And I was like, oh, sh-. like literally, I promise you, I was in security. It was literally the only place on the planet I could be in where I could have made it the next day. Was that down to like hard work and stuff? Sure, we prepared well, but like there's a lot of luck in this business. Do you know what I mean? And it's just the, the cards fell well for us that day. Absolutely. So yeah, I literally started the next morning. So I didn't have one day in New York of peace. That's great. Straight the next day. So what was what was the, I guess like after AngelPad, like what was that process like? So you got into AngelPad and now what are you doing in terms of yeah, so building up the Yeah, it's 12 weeks. It's super intensive. So it's different to like YC or something. You're physically there every day. Our cohort had 13 teams. You're physically in the same room all day long. That's why you're sort of you know, working, uh, a lot of people are living very close by. And it's 12 weeks of, you know, boot camp. Boot camp's the right kind of answer, right? So there's all these like mysterious things about fundraising that are basically just, you know, in Steve Jobs' world, rule, rule around together, all that good stuff. And then how to pitch, how to demonstrate your addressable market, you know, all these things that are um, bread and butter for an effective fundraise. And then to be fair, you know, AngelPad's prides itself on on giving the product market fit a good kicking as well like you know does this really stack up like you know what i mean have you have you shown the traction to show this works or actually are you adjacent to where you should be and you need to look into this area more let's go do some research and, and figure that out so that by demo day at the end of it you know those pitches when we started were freaking terrible and by demo day, I was like, I need to invest in every single one of these companies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because you've like got that, got that energy and got that precision. Mm. Would you say Does that? that absolutely, absolutely. So, like, do you think you could be where you are today without AngelPad? Hundred percent, no, not a chance. Why? Why is Absolutely. that? Because, because of the bootcamp nature, or like knowing what you know now, could you recreate that time? Um, it, it was the first time in my life that I understood what it would be like to be outside the club. Meaning like, you know, for many reasons, you know, personal reasons, whatever else, I've always felt like I, have, I had access, the same fair access to resources that anybody else would have or, or, or better access, right? But when it came to startups and that world, man, there's a whole set of people who already understand how that's going to go. So a specific example might be, if I've gone and done computer science at Stanford University, man, that world is all around me. I'm going to have the, the um, access to the money, I'm going to have access to the, to the people, to the talent, to the, you know what I mean? Even physically, right? I can drive five minutes down the road and go and see a world-class venture capitalist. It was the first time where I understood that I was outside looking in, 
And I didn't know anything. I didn't know the people. I didn't know the process. I didn't know how it like, had to put together. And so I was grateful that what Angel had achieved for me was at least allowed me to the party. Do you know what I mean? Like invited me in. So I'm allowed to, to, to then learn hard and learn from super successful people. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, you know, you talked about product market fit. What, what are some mm-hmm. of the things that you guys did to achieve that? Is it, what's an what's a indicator of fit? Is it paying customers? Is it usage? Is it, uh, what was it during that time? And then what is it now? I guess I'm kind of controversial on this. I, I don't believe that any company ever has product market fit. And, and why, the reason I say that is, let's take a really big example, Salesforce, right? If you speak to people about Salesforce, which is obviously, and I choose it because it's so, so successful, right? No one would ever argue that Salesforce doesn't have what most people would call product market fit, right? And yeah, ask most users of Salesforce what they think of it, and they'll say it's clunky as hell, and it's hard to use. And so I ask myself, do they have product market fit? If their users are unhappy using the software right now, um, and I know they're working hard on it, and I'm sure they'll get back to, um, back to nimbleness, but like, is that product market fit, or are they super at risk from the new, the new way, people like Pipedrive coming through, um, who may you know, steal the rug? If the last 100 years have taught us anything, it's that nobody is ever safe, and you always have to be fighting, do you know what I mean? You, you need to continue fighting and never sit back. So for me, what's the measure of product market fit? You're absolutely right. Um, I'm a big believer that, that you don't know if someone likes your software until they pay for it, right? Because, because that's the challenge here, right? There's, there's many things that we can do for other people that they don't pay for. The difference to the business is somewhere there needs to be money, that's the, that's the game. So I think, I remember vividly, Yvette Feverly at 4 k Associates, I was having brunch in Eastside West in the East Village in Manhattan when uh, she agreed to a $1,000 um, annual deal and you know not sound too silly like it was hard to see the menu for the next couple of minutes because I was so <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe it I could not I was like oh my god oh like oh and, and the sense of responsibility oh my god I was like right I like, I'm gonna do anything I can think of to make this woman happy mm. and I'm pleased to say she's still a customer That's so <laughs> well, we kept our first ever customer so yeah that money thing's really important but I do honestly believe that it's, it's just a grayscale, right? You either have no product market fit or you have pretty good current product market fit. Do you know what I mean? The cost of acquisition, like is it getting cheaper and cheaper for more people to find out about what you do? That's a good indicator for me that people like it enough that they're telling other people. Right. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So it's like an ongoing, it's an ongoing fight. It's not a moment that you that you get. Absolutely. You know? So like, so how would you and I, I want to touch on those other elements the NPS piece the customer acquisition piece but let's say like that first customer that you brought on for the thousand dollars a year were you how did you go about securing that was that a cold call was that through AngelPad like your first your first customer it's all the way to maybe like your first 10 or so like how did you mm-hmm. how did you build up those bases so I, I can't remember who it was that I read on, I think it might be the guys at Intercom actually um, wrote about, yeah, it was, I think it might have been Des wrote about uh, how they got their first hundred customers. And I remember he, I, I read this at the time and he, he, uh, they had a strategy, but their strategy was mainly dominated by graft, right? As in like, I'm going to find every connection I can. I'm going to meet people at, um, you know, trade shows. I'm going to speak to my network, my friends, my family, whatever else. And I wholeheartedly agree with his approach. I think that the idea that there's some sort of like growth hacking thing at the beginning, like if you can do that, good on you. But honestly, like we just contacted every single person we could think of. Um, And even if it wasn't about buying, it was about like, yo, can you try and onboard to this? And like, I'm just gonna watch you and see where you get stuck. Or like, hey, like if you, if out of these five things, which gives you the most pain. And I'll give you an example of one that I was completely wrong on. I thought that like files was still a pain, right? Like file storage. Turns out actually between like Drive and Dropbox and Box, like I'm on OneDrive now with Microsoft, like, yeah, people have their like, like aches and pains. Like, oh, it's hard to like, you know, choose a folder structure or whatever. But basically the problem solved. And I found that out not by like some sort of clever research effort. I found that out by constantly paying for people's sandwiches and sitting down with a big Google sheet with a two by two of like person down the side and like things that annoy them along the top mm. and realizing that I never put an X in that column. There's just never an X there. Mm. So I was like, right, that's out from the value proposition. It's just not real. Even if I think it's real, it's not, people don't care. Mm. 
that make sense? That answer your question. Yeah. So, so to recap it, um, you, I mean, you use your network for feedback on the product, but you also use the network to source your first tranche of customers. Yes. Hundred percent. So, at what point did you move beyond your your network, or did you ever never really move beyond your network? I guess even more more specifically, at what point did sources outside of your network become the majority source of deal flow for the biz? Yeah, that's a very good question. I would say I've found that your network, or that my experience has been that, that our networks will always drive the 10x opportunities. Meaning if the business can currently support customers at about a thousand bucks a year, mm-hmm. if you want to do a 10,000 buck a year deal, that's the moment to use your network. Then you've proven the case when it's because obviously network is easier. Now you can sell lots of deals at that. Now you've got $10,000 deal customers coming in inbound. Now, if you want to get to a hundred thousand dollar deal, you're going to need to use network again. And that's how we've done it basically. So, you know, our largest deals are um, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Um, but the first time we did that, we had to do that through sort of relationship to, to earn the right when you're unproven at that scale. To answer your question about when, um, from the very beginning to be honest from the very beginning so from month one um we had done sensible things like you know no magic right again graph we were answering questions on quora we were um trying to get an obscure french blog wrote about us it's forgive my terrible french accent but it's called blog du malaita um a random french blog it drove a third of our traffic in the first five we got asked to do Hive in French a lot. We didn't have the bandwidth to do it, but like we could tell by the number of questions that like it had gone huge in France. And that was just luck, right? He just, he just, well, I guess luck, but also we had been like on Quora. We did well. We got on VentureBeat fairly early, which is really- Could you have gotten to that first year or year and a half on sales alone, knowing everything you know now? I think it's simply, I think it's just a time thing, right? It's, it's, it, it is true what people say, which is venture capital doesn't buy you money, it buys you time, right. in my view. So it's like, as, as you know, like, can you build a bootstrap business? God darn, yes. People have been doing it for millennia. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's always been possible. And anyone who says it's not, you know, needs to take a long, hard look. What we chose to do because of our ambition and our belief in the timing of the market, we believe that the time is now. We believe that the that that flood is coming across. You know that's why no one was talking about like Trello and stuff like that like ten years ago. Nobody was. Everyone was like, "Oh, SharePoint. You know, it's that's the one we choose, but it's a dog. So what do we do?" Um, everyone's talking about it right now. Look at the look at the exits in the market. Right, we've got Smartsheet IPOing, Trello going to Atlassian, Asana doing a huge funding round. These things are hot, hot, hot. What VC has allowed us to do. Is to join that race as a as a peer, you know, eighteen months after starting, could we have caught them without venture capital? I don't believe so. We couldn't have seized the moment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, there's I've had many conversations with folks who are bootstrapping, folks who uh, rely on friends and family, folks who then go the VC route, folks who go the private equity route, and it's all different kinds of financial vehicles. They all come with their different uh, different pros and cons. Yeah, for and, sure. In time. For sure. And also, yeah, you're right. And, and also, like, this idea that every business needs venture capital is right. stupid. Right? Right. The reason that we're suited to venture capital is three things. One, with software. So our marginal cost is zero. So it costs money to build it. But then if you add more people, it's free. Right. So, you know I mean? so of course, that's attractive once it's built. Two, it's recurring revenue. So as long as we stay alive, we continually earn more money year on year on year. And the third one is in our particular market, it's a big product, right? We were building a collaboration platform. We weren't building like a little widget or a, you know, a service for our friends or whatever else. So it's a classic example of invest your money up front, get the recurring revenue engine moving, and then we can serve 10 more customers for 10 more years for zero bucks. Right. Then you also, you know I mean? you also have the, the capacity to jump onto that wave before the the window of opportunity exits because I imagine if you didn't raise that capital and you weren't able to move in the way that you did it may have been more challenging for you to get to where you are today I think we'd still have been in a hotel room together or maybe a garage (laughs) (laughs) with me like going like to shout and go faster go faster Eric (laughs) trying to come with a collaboration platform on his own well I'm I'm glad I'm glad you're not there today 
Today's episode is brought to you by Brilliant. Head over to brilliant.org forward slash giants and crowns or go to giantsandcrowns.com forward slash brilliant. You know, um, one of the reasons why we started Giants and Crowns uh, is to really focus on and exercise extracting lessons learned. We're hosting these conversations in the hopes that the actions taken by our guests, the decisions they've made can help inform the decisions that we will all make as business owners, as generalists, as scientists, as designers, as photographers, as, as producers, as creatives, um, but even much more so than all that as lifelong learners. So. I, I fundamentally think that, and I think you you guys would agree as well, to be a great thinker, to be a great learner, you have to have multiple perspectives, multiple models, a diversity in perspective. Um, you need to be multidisciplinary. Brilliant is hands down one of the best places to polish up and do that in an engaged and active, interactive way. And you know, there's, there's actually this really dope quote by Charlie Munger. He talks about Charlie Munger, the partner of Warren Buffett um, over at Brookshire Hathaway and also an inspiration for the podcast. What he says is the first rule is that you've got to have multiple models because if you have just one or two that you're using, the nature of human psychology is such that you'll torture reality so that it fits your models. And the models have to come from multiple disciplines because all of the wisdom of the world is not to be found in one little academic department. That's crucial. Brilliant provides frameworks that are helpful for thinking and solving problems. Brilliant is a place where you can achieve true understanding by getting to the heart of a concept. Their courses are written by leading instructors and researchers who have worked to provoke natural curiosity and guide you through an interactive exploration of deep concepts and principles and ideas. So definitely check out Brilliant. Head over to brilliant.org forward slash giants and crowns or giantsandcrowns.com forward slash brilliant. Support giants and crowns by doing that. And the first 200 folks from giants and crowns who sign up get uh, 20% off their first entire uh, premium subscription year. Um, so sign up, check it out. Let us know how, you, how, how you're enjoying it. Um, when we send out our weekly updates, respond with a screenshot or something. That, that'd be awesome. Let us know that you're part of the crew. Um, all right. Thank you so much. So you touched on uh, NPS and customer acquisition, and you kind of spoke to those two things in a in a connected fashion, suggesting that you know the better your product is, the better the experience is, um, the the more people are are willing and possibly likely to tell other people about it, which then reduces your customer acquisition costs. Like how important and one, how important is that? But two, how have you sort of systemized or or structure that within your business, like the idea of looping feedback into your business so you can track the NPS and then also tracking your custom acquisition costs. Yeah, so several parts to that. So I think it was, um, it might've been David Scott at Matrix Partners who mentioned this. Essentially, if I were a VC and I were deciding on, let's say series A or seed round businesses that have a product in market, I believe that the most underlooked metric of all is NPS. Why do I believe that? Because I don't really give a crap how many widgets you sold last month, as long as someone is willing to pay for it. So there's a value prop there. If the NPS is high, that means by definition, they're willing to recommend to others. That means your cat can be unthinkably low and you found something that's real. The rest of this stuff, the marketing, the sales and consistent engineering, they could be taught, right? Have a very good NPS. And so there's a strong temptation to say, NPS is stupid. It doesn't work properly because our number isn't high enough. NPS is a brutal measure. Like it's brutal. Like negative NPSs, I've seen plenty of them in different businesses. Um, how do we, um, your question was, how do we sort of industrialize that in the business? Well, a couple of ways. One, it's in foot high uh, letters on our TV screen in the office 24 seven. So every single person can see what NPS is right now, and we do that over a rolling four-week period, and also a, a, a line graph of where it's been since we started this business. Mm. So, you know, culturally, that makes it pretty damn apparent whether people, you know, would recommend Hive to others or not. Second, our customer success team. Uh, I'm customer success by trade. I have made a, in my view, very controversial and very unusual decision on how those guys are compensated. They are compensated on one metric, and that is NPS. Mm. Not upsells, not renewals, 
not like none of that stuff, not like, you know, consistent implement, no, NPS is the only thing. Why? Because I need somebody who keeps us like NPS honest, where all they're thinking about is, does this actually make people happy? Is this actually useful? We've got our commercial team to make sure that converts to dollars. We need somebody who is, who can be true in front of the customer and know that the only thing they're trying to achieve is that customer would say, if asked, would you recommend Hive? Yes, I would. And then to your last point about acquisition, um, we know, all of us know that in B2B, you know, CAC, your CAC to LTV ratio is one of the most important parts of your lifeblood. There is only one way that you bring your CAC down beneath the competition, especially in a crowded market. And that is by people telling their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, oh, this is what we use, you should try it as well. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that you bring your CAC down beneath, you know, the Google AdWords standard or the, you know, print media standard or the um, affiliate standard. Um, and so we believe that NPS is the best measure of that. And that, that is how we can, you know, have achieved our very unusual Cactile TV ratio. Mm. So how do you, how did you come to that decision to, to sort of base composition for your customer success team around the NPS? And then how did you implement that, um, especially as your customer success team has grown? Mm. So as I said to you earlier, honestly, um, I'm very good at bad ideas. I like to, uh, <laughs> I like to have a lot of them. Luckily, I had time on this one. So I, I uh, was uh, in customer success for six years prior to doing Hive, um, you know, ended up being the global head of CS. So this is all I thought about for, you know, half a decade or whatever. And what I found was that there was this tremendous temptation to double up on metrics. So, you know, the CS person and maybe an account manager type person are both trying to get the renewal. That leaves the customer high and dry. They've got two different kind of like hyenas trying to like get their like head in the money pot, if you know what I mean. Mm. So what you need to do is, is, is the oldest trick in the book. I mean, I'm not say trick, it's a poor choice of words. It's the oldest like truth in the book. I want to have somebody who's looking out for me and then I'm, a, then I'm prepared to have somebody who is, you know, looking out for the business. And if you, if you comp your CS people on NPS, your CS person in that room has exactly the same aims in life as the customer. And that gives that customer somebody that they can trust come hell or high water who's only ever thinking, yeah, yeah, but will this make this person happy? If you know what I mean? Yeah. Does that answer your question? It or does. Not? It does. I, it, it does sort of open up this, this a question around how do you find people who are good at customer success? Because, you, mm. because there is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not as deep in terms of but, understanding how customer success works across different industries. I can speak to how it worked, for example, at, at previous companies where we would, it's really just trying to think about like what the customer's position is, how our product is being experienced by them, and ensuring we're actually solving the pain that they're having. But not everyone's good at figuring that out. And you know, want genuine understanding and comparative points about how other people are solving the problems I currently have. So for you to be effective for me as a, as a CS resource, I need two things from you. One, you are actually emotionally and intellectually capable of putting yourself in my shoes and understanding what my world looks like. And then number two, from a knowledge perspective, you've seen enough people that look like me that you can see, you can say, here's how Bob solved it. Here's how Lisa solved it. And I actually think that Lisa's approach is better than Bob's. So I would coach option two. And I go, well, what about option three? And I'm able to say, oh, no, I've seen that before. That was not successful. And here's the reasons why. Mm. So I'd like to challenge a sale. I believe that a great CS person these days have, is fantastic at actually active listening into what the person's pain is and then has a brain full of experience of how different people solve that pain and can, you know, I like the analogy of a shepherd. Um, so you're not just listening to them, you're taking them somewhere. Do you know what I mean? You're like, you've, you've got a viewpoint on, this is, this is the best way to go, guys. Like, I've seen this before, trust me, come with me, and then you earn the trust because you take them somewhere great and they're like, ah, sweet, I'll trust you next time as well. Mm. So how do you, how has Hive gone about, well, first, how big is the customer success team now? Small, just three, three people right now. Wow, wow. Um, how many, to the extent that you can speak to, how many customers do you guys have? Like uh, yeah, so it's uh, <laughs> many hundreds. Many hundreds. So three people, yeah. many hundreds. Yeah. How do you, how do you find people who can, who can, 
who have sort of the emotional intelligence and the sort of the yeah. industry understanding to yeah. drive the customer success that you want to have across hundreds of customers. Yeah, we don't hire a customer success person. We hire for a pain point in the customer base. Mm. And each person has a specialism in solving a certain pain point. That's how you actually get the, that's how you go above and beyond, right? Because this person, that's how you get the stories. Even if they're not that far into their career, there's a reason why they understand that pain set really well. So I give, if I give you an example, Erin Gouvaire and our team, um, she, is, she came directly to us um, from being uh, at a creative agency uh, here in New York. So when Erin goes to one of our creative agency clients and they say, here's the challenges I'm facing, Erin was facing the same challenges two weeks before. So like, she doesn't need to sit there and sort of vaguely try and understand what they're saying or spend six weeks getting up to speed. She can just say, yeah, 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 no, exactly, yeah, exactly the same for me. This is how I solved it. And this is how, this is how high fits into that or whatever. And that's true um, for each person on the team. They all have a specialism in something that they know the best about. So customers who come to Hive know that they're going to go to the person who is best versed in their pain, not just in their industry or whatever else, but actually the, the pain they're trying to solve. Mm, okay. Does that make yeah, sense? It, it does. It definitely does. So like she and other folks on the team, how much of the sort of recruitment process, and this is kind of focusing on the people side of the business, how much of the recruitment process has been inbound versus outbound and how have you thought about scaling those or what kind of lessons have you learned in the last uh, four, three, four years? Um, I've learned that um, New York tech is hot as hell right now. I feel quite sorry for all the bankers trying to escape. <laughs> we, uh, we get people who are like ridiculously well qualified applying for like entry roles here mm -hmm. because they just want to be a part of this tech revolution that's happening in the city right now. Um, we, when we have a job application open, we generally get between 50 and 70 inbound applications a day. And that's just from AngelList. So the interest in these roles is absolutely fierce, um, which obviously is nice for us because we get to, um, you know, it gives us a great um, breadth of people to tours and the Oscars and all that good stuff. Um, it's just a great place to build a tech business right now. Mm. So do you think it'd be challenging to build this same kind of business in a place like, like Vermont or Arizona? I do believe so. I do believe so because because you need specialist talent, right? And, and to that point about CS, right? We're not looking for somebody who has a pleasant phone manner and you know what I mean, is polite. We're looking for somebody who is X agency, worked on sort of, you know, has technical skills and has some consulting in their background. Mm. You need to be in the urban center to find that candidate. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. So to kind of pivot a little bit to the the sort of the process side, because we've, we've touched on the product, we've touched on the people side. On the process side, what, are, what have been some of the biggest lessons you've learned over the last uh, couple of years in building the oh, business? Wow. Like, and yeah, what's what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned on that side? Don't do any process. That is the biggest lesson <laughs> I've learned. Oh <laughs> my God. If I could change this, I'm not a regretful man in general. You know, I try and like learn from my lessons and, and take them as like, you know, life experiences or whatever. If I could change one thing, one thing, I would have put no darn processes into sales at the beginning because it's a complete freaking waste of time. Um, like just get a Google sheet, write down a hundred businesses that you want to sell to, try and figure out their emails, try and figure out a phone number for them and then email them and phone them consistently. That's all you need to do. And you can do that, in my view, up to your first 100 customers. And then worry about Salesforce and Outreach or Salesloft and HubSpot and this and that. I just think we wasted cycles getting that set up and we could have done that now. I mean, the, the nice thing is we have a super strong kind of like funnel thing or whatever, but I still think just hustle early on is just the best way to do it in my view. And so, so I guess to kind of expand that a little bit, what, what do you, what were some of the, 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 the losses or the pains that you kind of dealt with during that time? You said you tried out a couple of different solutions. Mm. Um, why, why do you feel that way? 
because it made me it took me to the edge of my own sanity to sit in a meeting where we're talking about you know i don't know how you know how we're going to define a certain type of account size in hubspot mm. when it's the middle of the month and perhaps we're behind target or whatever mm. and i'm like do you know what's not going to get us close to target talking about how we're going to categorize these things in hubspot mm. it was that it was the, the, as you add tools into the equation there's more things to be done to avoid the tough stuff in a startup and the tough stuff in a startup whether you are seed stage whether you are idea stage whether you're whatever else any time that you are not on the phone to a customer or on a um, podcast talking to an intelligent person like yourself any time that you are not communicating outside of your organization you, your time is being spent less well mm. and so i just believe just measure yourself day by day how much of my day today was i communicating outside of my organization that's the golden time and i think the more that you turn inward and worry about tools and all that stuff too early you are just wasting that sand timer is just ticking away whilst you argue about you know your nurture stream in, in hubspot mm. meanwhile you could just have emailed 10 great prospects in the city got yourself out there the next day taking them for a sandwich and maybe open the door to a wonderful new opportunity mm. i think i think that makes a lot of sense especially on the sales side um i would push back just a little bit in terms sure. of because I, I think i guess it's each business is different um I do wholeheartedly agree. You can apply process too early and you get caught in the weeds. But I guess I, I wonder, as you start to think about it, what are some other process elements, ideas, um, maybe even from a cultural sure. standpoint that you put in place that, that allowed you to scale yourself and the tenacity and the conviction with which you speak about the product? Yeah. So there's one absolutely golden team tool or you know team process thing that I would recommend to absolutely everybody. So I was you know, a management consultant for a number of years, learned a lot of absolute nonsense, but there were a couple of jewels in there, and one of them is a racy. Have you, have you ever done racies? Yeah. Are you familiar with them? Yeah, yeah. Racies are the fastest way imaginable to agree how you're going to do something, who's responsible, and who's included. It's just awesome. In a 15-minute meeting, you can avoid six months of politics, six months of disagreements. Oh, I didn't get told about this, told about that. So racies, um, R-A-C-I, for anybody who's interested. Google it, they're absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, Process-wise, races are really important to me. Uh, if it, I don't know if it's, uh, for you it's under process, but we uh, stand up as a company every single morning um, and go around to, just to say what we did yesterday, what we're gonna do today and how anyone can help us. And then on a Friday morning, uh, we tell everybody what was the, the thing that made us happiest that week, which could be work on non-work. Both of those are you know, a golden piece of our sort of cultural process. Um, is that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the standing standing meeting piece for me is like a, the heartbeat for the organization, kind of mm. getting that, that pace going is a good way to get things started. Um, I guess so, so pivoting a little bit, how has um, communication evolved in the organization, especially between you and your, your, your co-founder, Eric? You know, the, mm. the business has expanded, the scope of the clients have expanded. Um, you've gone from 1,000 to 10,000 to 100,000. Like, how mm. has... How has your ability to communicate with the organization shifted? And how has communication within the organization, independent of you, evolved as well? Sure. I think, um, so for me and Eric, uh, is uh, we like to think of it as like a marriage. Um, <laughs> uh, marriage doesn't need work, right? So we, from the very beginning, took very deliberate steps to protect our relationship. Um, for example, actually setting aside time each week to eat together. Um, so that we're not under sort of like super pressure and whatever else we've got time to sort of air our thoughts properly. We're very careful to make sure that we do feedback both ways um, so that things can't get, um, that they can't fester, right? You know, you, as fast as possible, tell me if I'm doing something that's annoying or whatever else and I'll, I'll try and improve my behavior. Um, same obviously the way around. Um, and also I think just having a bit of faith in other people is pretty, a pretty powerful um, thing that my father taught me like people behave or you know people perform as well as you thought they were going to um i think it's like a counterintuitive thing that's that's really true 
if you assume that people are going to be absolutely awesome, you'll be astonished how many times that actually comes out. And if you assume people are going to mess stuff up, it's amazing how many times they will uh, fulfill your expectations. That's just, no, I, lo- I love that, especially it also kind of speaks to your almost indirectly your ability to hire and bring people onto the team who have mm. the skills that you have a lot of faith in. Um, that's awesome. So um, before we jump into our quick for our questions, what, what would you say has been or what do you say coming up is some of the biggest challenges you have or opportunities you have within the organization? someone's going to win this race um someone's going to be first everyone's going to switch to uh project management for their their day-to-day work just everyone is going to do it every business will have that Um, and we are fighting to be that number one so i mean it's that macro level challenge right of catching catching this wave as it's falling nice nice okay last question if you were to do anything other than hive let's say hive you exit a couple billion dollars you're liquid you own an island what do you do next uh try to help um sort out criminal justice in the states oh um people get people out of jail that have no business in being in there but even if they've done something bad um you know i believe in sort of forgiveness and understanding other people's shoes so I will, um, as soon as I'm able, devote myself to uh, helping uh, helping get some people out that are, are rather forgotten right now. I love that. I love that. Well, John, thank you so much today. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm looking forward to catching up with you later on. It's absolutely a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, buddy.